on our two-month, or no, two-year anniversary, which was two months ago, uh, we began this series working through the book of Titus, and as Alex just said, asking the question, how to be a healthy church? That is a good question, and I hope you've been encouraged over these last couple months that we've been, as we've been asking this question, uh, but I hope we don't stop here. Just because we are finishing Titus today does not mean we shouldn't be asking this question. This is a question we should always be asking ourselves, how to be a healthy church. That is a good metric to measure ourselves by our health. It's a good metric, better than uh, numbers, better than a lot of other things. We want to be a healthy church, and our measuring stick for how healthy we are must be God's Word. As we've jumped into this letter, you likely remember, because it was not that long ago, uh, the way this letter began. The first two verses sort of set the stage where Paul, uh, as he writes to this uh, younger pastor, Titus, uh, who, is, who is planting churches on the island of Crete, as he uh, writes in the very beginning, he gives his thesis statement of what, what is the purpose of this letter? Why is he writing? It says, Paul, so he's talking about himself, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why is he writing it? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. That is a loaded beginning, uh, and there's a lot of things going on in those verses, if you remember. But one thing I want to drill down on, and I hope that you've seen as we've worked through the book of Titus, is that section in the middle where he's saying, why is he writing this? Well, for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. He wants to build these things up. Knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And we've seen this repeated refrain, these themes come up in every single passage as we've worked through the book of Titus. This knowledge of the truth, we've seen talked about in different ways. We see the elders are called to hold firm to the trustworthy word. That's this knowledge of the truth, this life-saving message of the gospel. Uh, frequently, we've also seen in that same verse and in other places, it referred to as sound doctrine. Do you remember all the times sound doctrine came up through this letter? Sound doctrine being healthy teaching. It's critical. It's an essential ingredient to a healthy church. And then in that first verse, it says, knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So these two things are hitched together. Now, godliness, we've seen worked out in a number of different places. In, in every single passage, we've seen this idea of what it means to actually live out the gospel. And we've seen specifically that phrase, especially in the most recent weeks, being referred to as good works. That we are called to be devoted to good works, zealous for good works. That, that we would renounce our ungodliness, uh, but that we would live upright, God, uh, godly lives in this present age. We've seen this refrain repeated over and over in each section of the letter. So these two things are essential. Knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Or what we've been talking about in slightly different language, but the same thing, is gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. These are in essential ingredients to a healthy church. And today, as we finish up this letter and we see Paul's conclusion uh, in this letter, we see these, this head-on collision again in the most beautiful way of gospel doctrine and gospel culture. We see these things interwoven into how the church is to live. And he doesn't just end his letter by saying, all right, 
hope I see you soon. There's a little bit of that. But he actually packs a lot in. And, and you might actually be surprised where he concludes his letter. But it makes a lot of sense as we especially think through that lens of gospel doctrine and gospel culture. These last exhortations that he gives make a lot of sense with this central thesis, this message that he's saying. And in this little conclusion, I hope you see at least three areas where Paul wants to encourage and build up the church. And he says, uh, first, you need to avoid distraction. Second, you need to discipline division. And third, you need to encourage devotion. So I hope you see that as we work through our passage. Because these exhortations, again, are this uh, beautiful intermingling of gospel doctrine, what a church believes about the gospel, and then gospel culture, how a church commits to live out these truths about the gospel. And all of this is on this journey of asking how to be a healthy church. I'm going to do something a little bit different uh, than I normally do. Normally I read the passage that I'll be preaching on, but what I want to do this morning is actually read the entire letter. Uh, this was a letter that it was again sent. We get a clue of who was likely delivering the letter in our very last verses of the letter. Uh, but this letter was delivered. Titus would have taken it. And even the fact that it ends with this grace be with you all, I mean, certainly gives us an understanding that this would have been a letter that was read out to the churches in Crete. And so I want to read through this entire letter, this letter that was first heard 2,000 years ago, uh, but that is just as important for us today and I hope just as much of an encouragement to you today. Now, it's not crazy long considering some of the passages that we've preached through before, but it is longer than usual. So uh, you will be helped as you always are helped, but even more so today to have a Bible in front of you on your lap. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's Bibles on the table over there that you can certainly use for today. And if you don't have a Bible, you can keep that Bible. Uh, we would love for you to have that. And parents, why don't you help your kids find Titus? It's a little book, so you can help them find it. And you may be helped, and your child may be helped, to follow along with your finger, uh, to just help everybody work through. And I, I'm pretty confident this is more of an exhortation to the adults. You'll be helped by following along with your finger. Uh, I don't want to lose you along the way, okay? When I finish reading, uh, as I often do, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe that to be true, I would encourage you to say out loud for your own encouragement and for the encouragement of those around you, thanks be to God. So let's hear God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. 
For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that... In everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days with malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So this morning we'll be looking at those last seven verses, Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. And as we've seen this same pattern repeated throughout the book of gospel doctrine and gospel culture crashing into each other and being interwoven with one another, I hope you saw that as we read through the letter. Just this refrain that's repeated, even within individual verses, that this gospel doctrine and gospel culture is just what the call is to be a healthy church. Uh, We're going to see that same thing in our final section today. The big idea from our passage is a reminder uh, of these things that, that Paul says to Titus that serves as a big idea for this section, but also in a sense serves as a final exhortation and big idea for the whole letter. It's this, it's stay focused. Devote yourself to God's word and God's way. Stay focused. Devote yourself to God's word and God's way. And so the first thing he does is he says, stay focused. He says, avoid distraction. Are you easily distracted? Are you distracted right now? I'm easily distracted. So what Paul does here at the end is he essentially says, stay focused. Avoid distraction. You don't want to, he's not just saying don't procrastinate. He's saying don't fall into these foolish, unprofitable, and worthless conversations. We see this in verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Stay focused. Don't get distracted. Because if we get distracted, we get into trouble. If we get distracted, we get into trouble. Now, what are these distractions? We see this in verse 9. We see foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. We also get descriptions of what these uh, things are like. We see that they are uh, foolish, they are unprofitable, they are worthless. Now, we're not likely tempted to have the same uh, distractions as first century Cretans. We're not likely filling up our time after the service chatting about uh, genealogy theories or uh, things like that. But we can be easily distracted. We can be very easily distracted. And we can think of all sorts of different avenues where we could be easily distracted uh, from foolish things. And they might even be good things, but we get distracted. You might think of secondary or sort of tertiary doctrines, things that are not of first importance, things that are not about the gospel. You might think of all sorts of these things. You could think of uh, the way a church is governed or uh, the millennial reign of Christ or all sorts of important things that the Bible actually does speak about. But they can become unprofitable and worthless if we let them become ultimate and if we let these things divide us. Other things that we can be distracted by are things that the Bible is even less clear on. You can think of horror stories of churches that have divided over the silliest things. And I say silly, it's not funny, ha ha, but silly uh, 
just the, the, I don't know, you think of the Bible translation. What translation they pick, the church splits over that. Or the color of the carpets, and the church splits over that. Or uh, whether a church should sing hymns or sing modern choruses, and churches split over that. And before we sneer at some of these things that historically we think, why would you split over that? We can think of all sorts of things that we are emotionally invested in. Things like uh, the way a church conducts uh, their small group ministry or uh, a children's ministry. Really good things, really good conversations that we should be informed by Scripture on, but something that we're not mandated to do in a certain way from Scripture. And these things that as soon as our emotional investment comes in can actually divide us. They become foolish controversies. But what's most compatible with verse 9 here? Uh, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. Likely not those kinds of things that can divide us. Likely just the things that are way out of left field. We think of rigid legalism. That's what they talk about, these quarrels about the law. Likely uh, we get this from the false teachers in chapter 1 that are referred to. That uh, they're propagating these Jewish myths. That they're likely saying, you need to do this so that you can be saved. They're adding to the gospel. That's a foolish controversy. We might even think of when you look at this whole idea of foolish controversies or the genealogies uh, section, how we could apply that to our life. Honestly, probably the best comparison would be things like conspiracy theories. Right? I think because I'm a pastor, some people find my email and love to send me things about when the world's going to end and, oh, they read Revelation this way this week. And uh, I don't know, I get on these lists and I'm like, this is what this feels like. Like, what are we talking about? These, these are, you know, conspiracy theories. They're, they're crazy. And we're, we're, we're wasting our time and energy as we devote our minds to these things. And, and Paul doesn't sugarcoat it, right? He says these things are foolish. These things are unprofitable and worthless. Now, we compare that in its immediate context to what we saw in verse 8. It says these good works that the church is to be devoted to are excellent and profitable. And then immediately after, he says, avoid these other things because they are unprofitable and worthless. At best, these controversies are a waste of time. And at worst, they are destructive. We see the false teaching uh, in chapter 1 that's upsetting whole families. It needs to be confronted. So what Paul says here to Titus and to the churches in Crete, he says, stay focused. Avoid distractions. In 1 Timothy, another pastoral epistle, uh, this, this idea of this foolish controversy is, is talked about someone having an unhealthy craving for controversy. You have an unhealthy craving for controversy. That could look in the way you probably expect it. It would be someone that's always playing devil's advocate, someone who just loves a good fight. They're chomping at the bit to win an argument. That's sort of this unhealthy craving for controversy. But you may be totally conflict-averse and also have an unhealthy craving for controversy, and that may manifest itself in gossip or slander. So we need to be careful. We need the same warning. We need to stay focused. We need to avoid distraction if we want to be a healthy church. This isn't to say that we just plug our ears and close our eyes and just la, la, la. We, don't, we completely ignore these things. We've seen that when false teaching comes in, there's been very clear, okay, you need to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Therefore, rebuke these false teachers sharply. Silence them. There are strong words that are used for when we need to enter the arena. But what this verse in chapter 3 tells us is we don't need to walk into every arena. 
We don't need to have an unhealthy craving for controversy. Sometimes we have to have hard conversations, but other times we're simply engaging in foolish controversy. I know I felt this big time over the last couple of years around COVID stuff. It's so easy to uh, slip into foolish controversy, conversations that are unprofitable and worthless. Yes, do uh, conversations need to be had? Absolutely. Do we need to think deeply about these things? Yes, but we need to be so careful. There's a fine line before we fall into the ditch of what we're seeing here in verse 9, avoiding foolish controversy. These things are unprofitable and worthless. And so let verse 9 of Titus chapter 3 be the hand that slaps your hand away as you go to reach for something that you shouldn't reach for. I thought maybe someone should make an app that you have to recite this verse before you log on to social media, before you engage in these foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law or whatever that looks like for you. These things are to be avoided. There's no part of the Christian life that calls us to do things that are unprofitable and worthless. But at times these things do affect and infect our own lives and therefore they do affect and infect our churches and so Paul goes there next in verses 10 and 11 and he talks about the need to not just avoid distraction but we also need to discipline division verse 10 and 11 says as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned we may uh, as we talked about, we need to sometimes engage in conversations, but we may fall into the opposite ditch of wanting to avoid controversy and conflict and neglect this clear teaching in Scripture. That as a church, we are to be a disciplining community. We need to discipline sin when necessary. It's a hard conversation. It's a hard topic to talk about. But the Bible is very clear on this whole concept of church discipline. And Titus 3 is not the only place that we see this topic addressed, and it's not even the fullest place that we see this topic addressed. But we do see it's an interesting thing. If we talked about Paul's word economy, it's a short letter. It's interesting that he spends time focusing on this. And historically, this would ring true as an important, uh, even critical ingredient for a healthy church. Historically, church discipline was an essential mark of a healthy church. John L. Dagg uh, famously and boldly wrote, when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. And so a right practice of church discipline was known as the third mark of a Bible-believing church, right behind the word rightly preached and the ordinances rightly administered. But why do we neglect this then? If it's such an important mark, clearly taught in Scripture, historically practiced, why do we neglect it? Well, I can, I'm sure you can think of lots of reasons. I think we're afraid of, of appearing judgmental. Uh, we are afraid of conflict and confrontation. And I think a big part for us in our culture, and our society, is we fall for this lie of individualism and autonomy that the Bible never describes in the Christian life, that we are just so independent. You have, you know, no input that you can give to me in my life. And our, our culture propagates this, right? You hear all sorts of messages. Uh, you do you. Live your truth. I mean, that's clearly not compatible with discipline. So I think that's why we neglect it. But I want to be so careful, abundantly careful, that we can overcorrect. 
here. We can overcorrect in this conversation. And on the flip side, uh, we, we don't want to actually be divisive in our attempts to obey Scripture. Because both sides of uh, the spectrum, both ends of the spectrum in this conversation of church discipline are places we don't want to be. Because both the abuse and the neglect of church discipline is incredibly damaging. And that's because sin always leaves a wake of destruction. Sin will always leave a wake of destruction behind it, whether it's perpetuated or whether it's ignored. And so it's a hard topic, but like any hard topic, uh, we don't want to let our culture's opinion or let uh, our, our even gut instinct to influence us. We need to go to God's word. And so what do we see here in verses 10? What is happening? Well, we see that someone is stirring up division. Why is this such a big deal? Well, division is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel unites. Through what Christ has done, he has created a family. We are adopted children of the Father. We are therefore brothers and sisters in Christ. The walls of hostility that should exist between us and other people have been torn down through what Christ has done. And so division is rebuilding those walls that, that have been torn down by the gospel. This is why division is such a big deal and something that's being addressed so seriously in this passage. Now I want another big qualifier. Not all disagreement is division. We are a family. Families disagree sometimes. And so every time we disagree, it doesn't mean, hey, you're being divisive. We need to be careful. And I think we're helped. I have a lengthy quote here by a pastor named Brian Chapel, which I think is very helpful as we think about this, the difference between a disagreeing and dividing. He says this, There's a difference between needing to divide and loving to divide. A divisive person loves to fight. The differences are usually observable. A person who loves the peace and purity of the church may be forced into division, but it is not his character. He enters into arguments regrettably and infrequently. When forced to argue, he remains fair, truthful, and loving in his responses. He grieves to have to disagree with a brother. Those who are divisive by nature lust for the fray, incite its onset, and delight in being able to conquer another person. For them, victory means everything. So in an argument, they twist words, they call names, they threaten, manipulate procedures, they attempt to extend the debate as long as possible and along as many fronts as possible. Divisive persons frequent the debates of the church. And as a result, the same voices and personalities tend to appear over and over again, even though the issues change, end quote. We need to be careful not to be divisive, but in our passage, it gives instructions how to confront a divisive person. See in verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. This shows both the procedure and the purpose of church discipline. Both the procedure and the purpose. The procedure lines up with Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 18 as we think about church discipline. He says, if a brother or sister sins against you, uh, you need to go to them privately. Show them their fault. If they refuse to listen, you need to come back with another witness or two, and then you need to engage with this person together. If they still refuse to listen, you need to then take it to the church. And if they still refuse to listen, even to the whole church, the church must do the hard and God-given work of excommunication. It's an incredibly important consideration, though, as we think about this, is that in that passage in Matthew 18, 
if they listen, in each stage it talks about if they listen, you have gained a brother. Praise God. Restoration is always the goal of church discipline. We see this in chapter 1 when it talks about rebuking uh, these false teachers. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Restoration is always the goal. Never forget that in this conversation. Also, we see from Titus 3 and what we see from Matthew 18 is that discipline is not only excommunication. Sometimes when we think of church discipline, we just think of the most extreme example. Discipline is much more than that. And this is why it's an essential mark of a healthy church, why it's actually a gift from God. Think of our bodies. Uh, We need a, a certain level of a diet and exercise regime to stay reasonably healthy. That's what we would call in the church formative discipline. We sit under God's word preached. We spend time in God's word. We are instructed and discipled by others. That's formative discipline. It's, it's correcting us. It's like that diet and exercise regime. But occasionally we need more correction, right? Your knee starts to hurt and so you wear a knee brace or uh, you need to change what you're eating because it's not, you know, sitting right or you're allergic or uh, you need to start taking a medication. This is what we would call corrective discipline. We have formative discipline And then corrective discipline, small corrections. And the majority of the time, that's what is going on. That's what should be going on in a church. But other times, small corrections are not enough. And so if we're thinking about our body illustration, that's when we need invasive surgery. Invasive surgery to cut out the disease that threatens to kill. And so this is the spectrum of church discipline that is really important for us to know as a church. All the way from formative discipline, that we sit under God's word and and seeing it work in our lives. Then there's corrective discipline of uh, rebuke, correction, warning, so that these small ailments don't turn into major spiritual maladies. But other times we need to go under the knife for the sake of the health of the body. And so in, in Titus 3, we get these examples of warnings. He says, warn them once, warn them twice. This is a serious privilege and responsibility of membership in the church. If I err and sin, if you love me, and if you love this church, you need to warn me. You need to warn me. This is why this is part of our covenant as a church. That this two-way relationship, it's what happens when we commit to one another in this way. If we live lives of isolation, completely dismembered, from the body through completely dismembered from the church, we don't have people that have said, I've got your back. I will watch out for you. And, and, and we miss the privilege of being able to say, I will watch out for others. I will exercise this God-given right and responsibility, which is completely motivated by love. But we see here that if even after warnings they refuse to listen, they are demonstrating with their lives that they are prizing their sin more than they prize Christ. Scripture says that then they are warped and entrenched in their sin. And so the church then must face the painful but necessary reality of corrective church discipline or excommunication or or as it says here in Titus, having nothing more to do with them. Because when someone is baptized and brought into membership in the church, the church is collectively affirming their profession of faith. They're saying, yeah, it looks like you're a Christian. And when they're baptized, they're saying, yep, you are baptized into what Christ has done and you are baptized into Christ's body, the church. 
And so you're, uh, the church is affirming this profession of faith, this citizenship in God's kingdom. But if unrepentant sin exists, what the church must do is make clear that they can no longer affirm this profession. They say to one another, they say to the one disciplined, and uh, implicitly then they say to the world, this person is not living like a Christian. We can no longer with a clear conscience allow them to bear the name or represent those who bear the name of Christ. Like the false teachers in chapter 1, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And so it's a hard but essential mark of a healthy church, and that's discipline. But what is an essential mark of discipline? And I really want you to hear this. I really don't want you to go home and miss this part. That the essential mark of discipline is love. You can write that one down. Essential mark of discipline is love. How? Well, love, it, it, we demonstrate love for the one being disciplined. Imagine a train, imagine there was a train track right here along this straight open section. And imagine a train was coming to hit me. You know, if Trevor loves me, he's going to say, Aaron, get out of the way. That's a warning. And I'm just, I'm doing my own thing. I'm like, ah, there's no train. It won't come. You know, then he's, you know, he said that pretty loud. The next time he's going to say, Aaron, get out of the way. Because he loves me. He doesn't want to see me get hit by a train. If I still don't listen, you know what he's going to do? I know Trevor. He's going to tackle me. And it's going to hurt me, and it's probably going to hurt him. But that's the necessary work of church discipline. He's going to do everything in his power to stop this train from hitting me. And this is what we do when we call out sin in each other's lives. We're seeing the train of sin bearing down on their life, and they're refusing to see it. And so we warn. We might have to yell, but eventually we're going to have to tackle. And as much as I might even be angry in that moment, it's, it's Trevor showing so much love to me. How much, how much would Trevor have to hate me to just watch the train come? I know Trevor doesn't hate me. So it shows love for the one disciplined. It also shows love for the rest of those inside the church because we are called to guard one another. If sin festers, it divides, it destroys whatever comes in its path. And so we demonstrate love for the one disciplined. We demonstrate love for those inside the church. It actually demonstrates love for those outside the church. The church is meant to be an embassy of the kingdom of God, a display of God's manifold wisdom to the watching world. Jesus said, how will, how will they know that you are my disciples? By your love for one another. And so if we let sin, again, fester, it's such a terrible word if we think about it. We let sin fester in our church. What a terrible reproach on the gospel. What a terrible demonstration of the gospel that we give to the watching world. And finally, it demonstrates love for God. It's just a direct disobedience of scripture if we refuse to practice church discipline. And it, it, it undoes the unity that God has created by the gospel. So the name of the game in church discipline is love. Love, love, love. And it's the gospel that gives us hope. It's the gospel that gives us hope in hard conversations like this. Last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 3. And we have to sit through the sobering verse, verse 3 of chapter 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What a horrible mirror to hold up as we think about our own sin. Anytime we come face to face with sin, it, it's sobering and humbling. 
But where does Paul go immediately after that? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. The gospel is the hope for sin. And it's the same gospel that gives us hope as we encounter sin in the church. As we encounter those that are dividing and divisive, it's the gospel that gives us hope. Because we can forgive only because God has forgiven us. We are able to reciprocate the love that we have received, the love that we know because even though we were dead in our sin, even though we were completely and utterly bringing nothing to the table, God in his mercy sent his own son to live a sinless life, the life that you and I could never live. And he did that so that Jesus could live this perfect, righteous life, yet pay the penalty for the sin that should have fallen on us, for our wayward, wicked warped, sinful ways. That's what fell on Christ. The condemnation that should fall on us because of our sin and our refusal to listen and change and turn fell on Christ. And that's the hope of the good news, that Jesus in his righteousness said, I will take his place. I will take her place. I will bear the sin for them so that they can be seen as righteous it's an amazing story. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated death. He demonstrated that God's wrath against sin had been satisfied. It gives us real hope that even though we on our own, we by our own nature are warped and sinful and stand there self-condemned, we can have hope because of what Christ has done if we would but turn from our sin and trust in Christ and his righteousness. That's the call and warning that we receive. And if you're here today and you don't know this hope, turn from your sin today and trust in Christ. It's so good of God to patiently warn, but it's the warning we need. But it's that same gospel that is our only hope, the same warning and patient call that we've received that should be at the heart of any conversations around discipline because we too were once sinful. Biblical church discipline is grounded in the gospel. It guards gospel doctrine and fosters gospel culture. We must avoid distraction. We must discipline division. And finally, we must encourage devotion. Verses 12 to 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All those who with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. We can be tempted to throw away these kind of greeting sections. We're like, I don't know these guys. I don't know these places. And so we can, we, we're tempted to do away with them. But these are important sections and we see a lot of little uh, things trickled in throughout these verses that contribute to this same idea, this gospel doctrine and gospel culture, especially this call to demonstrate care and love. And we see that in a few ways. First, Paul says he's going to send these workers. These are likely uh, either Artemis or Tychicus. One of them was likely the one who brought this letter to Crete. Now, we don't know anything about Artemis. Uh, we know Tychicus has come up a few times as a faithful gospel worker. But it's, it's encouraging that, that, that Paul cares about this church. And so he's sending out his best to go and do the hard work 
of planting these churches and seeing these churches grow in Crete. And he's doing this, it says, so that, there's a, uh, that Titus can come back to him. He's sending in replacements so that Titus can come, whether that's for encouragement or discipleship, maybe reassignment, uh, so that he, as he spends this winter in Nicopolis, uh, they can do their thing. Now, this is not necessarily just a proof text for snowbirds, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go winter somewhere. Uh, that's not the purpose of this verse. Uh, there's debates. There's a few different Nicopolises, and this uh, likely is a place uh, on, in, Greece, in Greece on the coast. And uh, some commentators commented how actually terrible the winters were there. And uh, that's probably why Paul went there, because everyone has to hunker down, and then it's a missional opportunity. But whether it was beautiful Mediterranean winter or, uh, or a nightmare, we know that Paul is always on a mission. He's always... Uh, proclaiming the gospel and so he wants Titus to come to be with him then he goes on to say speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way see that they lack nothing again we don't know anything about Zenus the lawyer other than he's a lawyer uh, but Apollos we've run into a few times is the, the gifted gospel teacher the gifted preacher and so what he's doing here is he's saying hey Titus hey church in Crete support these gospel workers speed them on their way what a way to what a great expression and see to it that they lack nothing i love that there's no hint of competitiveness here in corinthians paul kind of addresses the tension that some people want to follow they're in like i'm in the apollos camp and i'm in the paul camp he's like get rid of that get rid of that and here he's saying speed him on his way there's no a bit of competitiveness here he wants to see the gospel go out that's the win to see these healthy churches planted and this is, should be an encouragement for us, that the way we live these godly lives is not just our own moral purity. It's not even just the health of our church. It's also who we can support in gospel work. We need to be churches that support gospel proclamation. We need to see that they lack nothing. And then in verse 14, it says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Again, this is the same nail that we've seen hammered over and over and over through this small letter devote themselves to good works help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful again that contrast that we see from verse 8 to verse 9 we see hammered again here not to be unfruitful don't engage in these worthless unprofitable conversations do good works help cases of urgent need send speed these people on their way and see to it that they lack nothing do this good be devoted to good works so that you're not unfruitful because we can waste our time, we can get distracted, we can neglect to do the things we need to do. But throughout Titus, especially in Titus 3, we're confronted with a number of different questions. And I want you to really answer these questions in your mind, okay? Actually, as I read these questions, I want you to answer them in your own mind. Do you want to be profitable or unprofitable? Do we as a church want what is excellent or what is worthless? Do we want to help cases of urgent need, or do we want to stir up division? Do we want to be justified by God's grace, or be warped and sinful? I mean, it feels a bit facetious to ask those questions, because they're such easy answers. Of course we want to be a healthy church. We need to want to be a healthy church. They're easy answers, but they're hard to live out. But this is where gospel doctrine, what we believe, what we know about the good news that saves us, uh, and gospel culture, this is where these things meet. That we should want to be a healthy church. This is exactly what the book of Titus is for us. 
what it has been for us over these last few months and what I hope it is every time you come back to this short letter and you ask the question, how can we be a healthy church? The message of Titus is not a silver bullet of innovation. It's a clear and simple message to have the gospel affect everything we believe. That's gospel doctrine and everything we do. That's gospel culture. We don't want to be a a church that reflects the shifting sands of culture. We don't want to be a church that reflects the opinions of the loudest person uh, in the room. We don't want to be a church that reflects the opinions of uh, just its pastor or any individual saint. We must be a church that reflects God's word. Heritage Grace Church, let's stay focused. Let's devote ourselves to God, God's word and God's way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son, the hope that we have in the gospel, which changes everything about what we know of ourselves, that we were once dead, but through Christ we can be made alive, and that that changes everything about how we are to live, and that changes everything about how we are to live as a church. And so God, help us to be a healthy church. Help us to be a healthy church in the upcoming days, weeks, months, years, and help Heritage Grace Church to be a healthy church for the days that we will never see. Lord, you are building your church. We thank you for the privilege it is to be able to have these conversations, to look to your word as we ask the question, how we can best glorify you, how we can best be encouraged, and how we can best proclaim the gospel to a world that needs it. Lord, help us. Help us to always keep our eyes fixed firmly on Christ. And as we come together to share in the Lord's Supper, Lord, help us to look to Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, and our friend. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.